Today's scripture reading is from Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Millie. Good morning, everyone. My name is Paul Lim. I serve here at Christ Prayer as a scholar in residence, and it's my pleasure and privilege to speak to you two Sundays in a row. I was really kind of fixated on the number 927. I kept thinking, how did they figure out the number of the corn, candy corns in that jar? Is that good? Oh, okay, during the Ohio State Penn State game, you're counting all the, okay, right. Great. Romans 5, 12 through 21. As I was thinking about this passage throughout the week, I was um, having quite a bit of difficulty, I'll confess. I teach at Vandy, and I give talks here and there, and normally I don't have a lot of difficulty in trying to formulate what am I going to say. And it's partly because if you're like into gymnastics, you, you may be a floor exercise person, but you're given the, you know, you're going to do high bars, and you're not really good at high bars, and you'd rather do floor exercise. So how it works in terms of preaching here at Christ Press is that uh, the preacher in town, uh, Pastor Stacy Croft, and whoever is preaching here, some, coordinates the scripture passage. So this Sunday's scripture passage is coordinated by Pastor Stacy, and I was like, oh man, I, 
really have a hard time explaining this particular passage. So if it is okay with you, could we pray together and look to the Lord? Lord, in our life, sometimes we feel in many ways challenged and at times even clueless. How do we, as mere mortals, explain the mystery of your grace? How can we speak of the kingdom of Christ, knowing no boundaries and knowing no end? Yet we see so many kingdoms vying for supremacy here. O oh Lord, we look to you and you alone as we have this daunting task of listening to and explaining and learning from the eternal word of God. May you accomplish that purpose for which the word was sent. In your name we pray. Amen. So for the past few weeks, we've been going through this uh, sermon series called A Love Supreme, Anchor Doctrines of the Reformation. And today is it. This is the end. Because in two days' time, on October 31st, where many kids and young kids and old kids will run around and get some of those candy corns and other things, it is actually the 500th anniversary of the beginning of a major movement in world history called the Protestant Reformation, or Reformation, put simply. So I want you to think about this with me today. Okay, so we're going to travel back in time 500 years ago, right? We're going to go to a city called Wittenberg in Germany, in southeastern Germany, and we're living there right now. All your life, you've gone to church. You've known nothing else except for Christianity. Basically, you know that God is holy and you're not. God is just and righteous and your daily life is a shabby reminder of how much you fail. But in your church, there's a system called penance, and so long as you do your best, you're taught that by your priest that God will not deny grace to you. You heard from your more informed friends who are better connected than you that a Dominican preacher named Father Johann Tetzel will be coming through town in a few days' time to collect money for a huge building project in Rome, a city that you've heard about but you've never visited. Rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica, a big renovation project worthy of your savings, perhaps. You have heard that he was a phenomenal preacher, and in his sermons he was effectively selling an important document called indulgences, which offered a full pardon, and as the church's teaching says, it offers remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins, and faithful Christians gain that plenary remission, full remission, under certain prescribed conditions, and in this case, it would be purchasing of this document called indulgences. Father Tetzel would say something like this, as soon as the money clings into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. It was causing a good deal of confusion and excitement. He was coming through town soon, and that meant that many were planning to give to the building project, which will wash away their sins with the purchase of this particular document. In fact, the prince of your town, Frederick the Wise, had a huge collection of relics. Relics meaning that a lot of these sacred objects that date back, some, some of them, to first century. 
And he was one of those possessors of these huge collection of relics that you living in Witten, we living in Wittenberg, Germany, meant that one of our sources of pride was, yeah, our prince has lots of these holy objects. And he would display them on All Saints' Day, which is what we call Halloween, I suppose. And the night before he came through town, a new professor at the University of Wittenberg named Martin Luther spoke about the problems of abuse attached to indulgences. He was trying to start an academic debate, and he wrote 95 of these theses or statements, and he talked about the problems of abusing the system of penance, especially regarding indulgences. Dr. Luther was a good Augustinian monk, and he understood that even our best of actions could be done with less than best intentions and motivations. So in Thesis 43, I don't know if we have it ready because it's my fault of sending it too late, but in Thesis 43 of the 95 statements, there you go. Can we actually read that together? This is actually a very important, because I bet you most of us have never really read the 95 Theses, may have heard of them, may have heard of indulgences, but let's read this together. This will give you a pretty good sense of what Dr. Luther was finding as problematic if we depended more on indulgences than the grace of God in forgiving us. Are we ready? Thesis 43. Christians are to be taught that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better deed than he who buys indulgences. Thank you. Because in giving to the poor, as he would explain in Thesis 44, love grows, thereby causing the man or woman to become better, but purchasing of indulgences does not increase one's love of neighbor, it merely frees from the penalty of sin. In other words, the Reformation doctrines of grace had profound economic impact. Knowing God and loving the Lord rightly would have tremendous consequence in the way that we spent our money. He who gives to the poor and lends to the needy does a better job, better deed, than he who buys indulgences only to satisfy one's own sin. Why might this be the case? For Luther, and he certainly did not intend to start this big movement called the Protestant Reformation, because after which the world was no longer the same. We living in Wittenberg found ourselves in 1520. We had different sort of religion. We were Catholics. We were simply Christians. We were now a different kind of Christian. Luther, Dr. Luther was our leader, and many others were joining and we were starting to talk more seriously about what does that mean for me to follow Jesus Christ under this new system? If you have moved from one country to another or one school to another, one town to another, there's a period of adjustment trying to figure out, okay, where am I? What am I trying to do? Who am I? For Luther, there's something called the covenant of grace. He never actually called that, but at the core of this covenant of grace or the theology of covenant, was his idea that the concept of God, uh, the whole idea of concept of God coming down to where we are and doing things in our place in order to do the things that we in Adam simply could not do, and similarly not doing the things that we are by nature corrupted to do. Today's sermon is entitled, Our Great Covenant-Keeping God. And today's text from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 um, is a very important text to better understand the theology of covenant or the idea of God's 
gracious covenant. We're going to talk about what covenant means in just a few minutes, and we'll go through that way. In fact, the entire book of Romans is one of Luther's favorite texts in all of the Bible. He said that the idea of the gospel is inseparably connected to the righteousness of God or the justice of God. Think of the word righteousness. What comes to your mind? Think of the phrase righteousness of God. How would you explain it to first graders or um, 75th grader for that matter? How do we explain these things? We'll try to attempt that in just a few minutes. And for him, the idea of God's righteousness or righteousness of God actually really troubled him. You know why? Because for Luther, he understood the righteousness of God to be something that which God requires of, of, of us. I am holy, I am righteous, you shall be holy and righteous, therefore you're going to have to give to me, demonstrate to me that you have sufficient modicum of righteousness so that I can say you are righteous. And Luther said, you know, for a long, long period of my life, that idea really troubled me. It really gave me a lot of heartache and headache, and he had all kinds of psychological and spiritual problems attached to this idea of the righteousness of God as something that which God requires of you and us. So I want you to think about that. I want you to, in fact, kind of struggle with it a little bit because for many of us, these ideas that we kind of talk about a lot no longer disturb us. We're like, oh, yeah, whatever. That's what it means. No, no, no. I want you to really sit down and think about why would this guy living 500 years ago named Martin Luther, a German whose father was not very pleased with his career shift from law to ministry, and he said, you know, the idea of the righteousness of God, he said, I hated the word. In fact, I hated this God who demand perfect righteousness from us. Who are we? And we're just mere mortals going through this world. And why does God make our life so much more miserable by demanding perfection from us? And he was already an Augustinian monk. And he took, he said at one point of his life, you know what? If anyone could be righteous before God by one's monkery and religious observations and observances, I would have become the first one. And yet, I came to realize that's not how I found righteousness. Because he came to realize soon in his lectures in Psalms and Hebrews and Romans that the righteousness of God is a gift of God. In fact, not a gift of God, the gift of God. It is the gift above all other gifts that God gives that to us. God gives that very thing that we sorely lacked and could not perform and could not produce. God gives that to us as a gracious gift. And Luther in Romans chapter 5 talks about it in such a beautiful way. He paints this wonderful picture of two Adams. First Adam and second Adam. The idea is something like this. There is somebody who represents you. Like it or not, there is a representative. You know what I mean? Think about the representative idea. Because when Pastor Case was doing that quiz and one friend didn't get it right, I could tell from a few others they were not very happy. Perhaps one, they, were not, they themselves were not called, thinking that if I were, had been called, then I would have gotten a better, I would have gotten the right answer. Maybe, and also, we don't like the representative idea if things aren't going well, right? You know, the U.S. Olympic team in volleyball, women's volleyball, let's say they, they went to the final game gold medal match, and then they lost to, I don't know, some country, and then you're an avid volleyball player, and you played for your school, and you identify with volleyball players, and, you, you, and then yet 
your representative, the U.S. team, loses, then it's kind of a bad thing in a way. We'll talk a little bit about this thing called the Curse of Bambino if you're a Red Sox fan, but, you know, it's something like there's a representative thing or Bill Buckner, you know, we'll talk about that in just a little bit, but let's go back to the idea of the covenant then. Because what happens in the history of humanity is that God establishes himself as the loving and law-giving and promise-keeping God. Loving God whose generosity and bountiful grace created all things in, the, in, in our cosmos. And at the same time, God is establishing the boundary. I am God, and you're my loved, beloved creature. So two covenants that we want to think about as we enter into this very daunting text. I read five, Romans 5, 12 through 21 multiple, like, I don't know, about 20 times this week, and I, I'm being honest with you, just letting, in you, letting you into my kind of inner life. I was like, how the heck am I going to explain this? I really, <laughs> you know, I, I really, and, and I guess the, the, the real kind of nuts and bolts of this passage is basically one Adam, Adam one, Adam two. And the struggle for me, again, I'll be honest with you here, is that I get the fact that death of Adam affected all of Adam's posterity. And it is not by choice. You get affected by Adam's genes or the kind of Adam and Eve's problems called sin. Like it or not, according to Western Christianity, the moment of your conception, moment of your birth, you have the thing called original sin. You cannot escape it. And what, what I couldn't get into the head of the Apostle Paul is that for Paul, the trespass is nothing compared to the grace that came through the second Adam. And then I kept thinking, okay, how is that better? I get that it's better, but then not everyone gets to be recipients, automatic recipients of this divine grace through the act of the second Adam. And how do I understand this? I mean, I understand. And so I want to kind of wrestle with you through these texts. The idea of covenant is covenant works, covenant of grace, two covenants. In chapter 2 of Genesis, God speaks to Adam and God and, and Eve and says, I'll give you everything here as a because I'm a gracious God. I love giving things to people and to my creatures. And anything and everything you have in this, you see in front of you, you can eat except for one tree. From this one tree of life you will not eat because on the day you eat of it, you will what? Die. So it is a clear kind of establishment of the boundary. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And God gives this cultural mandate, um, you know, you will work my field, you will work this garden, and I want you to be producer of things, I want you to be enjoying this partnership you have with me. And so you're going to be vice regents. You're going to rule over and have dominion over all of these things that you see because I love ruling graciously. As we were singing earlier, Jesus shall reign where the sun, you know, his kingdom shall, I mean, it just the language of kingdom, especially in our contemporary global geopolitical context, I was weeping in this beautiful hymn by Isaac Watts that the kingdom of Jesus is unlike any other kingdoms because our kingdom or our kingdoms are often carried on its identity and mission by what? Violence. We're going to, okay, you're about to nuke us, we're going to nuke you. You're about to invade us, we're going to invade you back. And I understand, under the sun, that's how we do things. But the kingdom of God is 
qualitatively different. God through Jesus Christ reigns through God's grace. That means God reigns through our hearts and souls and hands and feet through the instrumentality of the bride of Jesus Christ called the church. Church operates not out of the covenant of works, but out of the covenant of grace. Why is that? Because the covenant of works was broken. Adam and Eve could not keep. So we have three things that we will uh, go through quickly today. Um, rule, rule for Adam, ruin of Adam, and redemption for Adam. Rule for Adam, 5.12 of our text through 14. See, covenant of works was given to Adam. Look, you will do this, and he was our representative. Adam and Eve were our representative. Uh, in short, uh, God, uh, Paul says, it's Adam who becomes the first representative character. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So it is the rule that was given to Adam as the representative figure. He was, and did he have the ability, was he in a, in a situation that was qualitatively better or different from where we are? Yes, he was. He could have had the ability to resist the temptation of the serpent. And we will see that in this passage of 512 through 21, there are these kind of movement and counter-movement, point and counterpoint between the first Adam and second Adam. So just as Adam was tempted and lured into this committing of sin, and Adam and Eve fall headlong into it, we see in the ministry of Jesus, the, one of the first things Jesus does is goes into the desert for 40 days of fasting, and then toward the end, in Matthew's version, it says, and he was hungry. That's the understatement of all of the biblical books. 40 days, because Jesus was fully human. 40 days of fasting and withholding food and drink, he would be emaciated and completely famished. And the tempter comes and says, if you are really the Son of God, turn these stones into bread, right? If you are the Son of God, that is an attack on the identity of Jesus' sonship. And in the same way, Adam was the Son of God. Adam was the Son of God who was living in the, what theologians will call, pre-Lepsarian world, before the world had fallen. In an enchanted world, enchanted with the palpable presence of God that was different, in, in some ways different from how we experience God. And Adam willfully walked away from God, breaking the covenant of works. The second Adam comes, and the tempter says, if you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread, and it does not. The rule for Adam that was given to the first Adam, the first Adam and Eve did not keep. The rule that was given to the second Adam, the second Adam, namely our Lord Jesus Christ, does indeed keep. Verse 12, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. We don't like it, right? We don't like the fact that well, how am I connected with that Adam guy? Whether it is some 7,000 years ago or seven, I don't know, like 1.7 million years ago, whatever it is, however your kind of chronology and the sort of cosmology is, one thing that is clearly true is that there was an Adam. That there was that Adam who was living as a represented figure, and many of us don't like the fact that Adam messed it up for me. We're likely to say, you know what, if I had been there, I would have done better. Don't be so sure. I know I would not have done any better. So rule for Adam was that God established that covenant 
But the second covenant that God gives is qualitatively different from the first covenant because we see that in Genesis 15, and that is the covenant that God makes with Abraham. God makes that covenant with Abraham and says this, and this whole covenant was basically telling uh, Abram that you're going to be actually having this wonderful, wonderful descendants, and your family will be so big and so large that it's, uh, it'll have no bound. But what God had him do was in the same way in the ancient Near Eastern cultural context, if you want to make a covenant, if you want to make a promise, this is what you do. Let's say I owe somebody, I owe Pastor Casey some amount of money. And he says, okay, we want to enter into this promise, and we're going to sign the promissory note. But before we sign the note, we want to make, have this kind of a demonstration, visual demonstration, so that we can see how serious we are. So I'm going to bring an animal, and I'm going to sacrifice the animal and cut the animal in half, Okay. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk across, over the body of the animal. Maybe I can try to walk over. So there's an animal here. There's an animal skin right here. Did you know that? Okay. So I'm going to walk over the body of the animal. Okay? You know what that means? That means may it happen to me, may the same fate that had befallen this animal fall on me if I don't pay back Pastor Casey the amount that I owe. So not only do I sign the promissory note, I'm actually demonstrating in their bodily language and action that I'm going to be cursed if I don't keep that promise. Genesis chapter 15, if you have time to look at it, read the story, because it's really a brilliant story and kind of a perturbing story because God actually does that. God makes the promise. See, it's usually the weaker part, someone who owes somebody else money or some kind of obligation, they would walk over the animal, the carcass of the animal, but God does that. God basically is saying, if I don't keep my promise with you, I'm going to die like this animal has, dead, has, has died, just as this animal is lying here as a clear demonstration of the solemnity and the seriousness with which I'm entering into this promise, that same thing will happen to me. Guess what? Did that happen to God? Yes, it did. It happened to God. God's seriousness with which God entered into promise with the posterity of Adam. The fallen family of Adam and Eve. God says in Genesis 3.15, God pronounces enmity between the serpent and the woman and the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And God says, you know what? I'm going to actually establish this enmity between you but I'm going to ultimately triumph over evil and sin and darkness and abject nothingness because I am the God who, is, who was and is and is to come. And that leads me to my second point of ruin of Adam's family. 5.15 through 16, again, this idea is that death through one man and life through another man, um, the representative figures. So what happens for Adam and Eve is that they were expelled. The story of Genesis is very, very clear and poignant about that, that they enjoyed all these things that God had given them without charge. It was a gracious gift from God. Yet when they broke that promise with God, what happens to Adam and Eve? Did they die right away? Because the God did say, didn't God, when he said that, you, that on the day you eat of it, you will die. Did they die? Yes and no. No, in that they didn't die right away. Yes, in that the process of death started to be set in motion, that they are going to die. It's a matter of time. 
It is not a matter of whether, but a matter of when. They are going to die. So they have this kind of faint memories of paradise lost. And what is going to come is in that sort of ruin of Adam's family, God expels them and says, okay, that's what's going to happen. It's going to happen that your, your, your life will always be met with death. No matter how long, no matter how well, no matter how well-to-do, no matter how poor, no matter how grief-stricken you are, your life will come to a terminal point. You will die. That's the ruin of Adam's family. There is a curse that God pronounces upon the serpent and the woman and the man. And there is a cosmos full of darkness. It is enchanted universe of ours, yes, as Tolkien and Lewis and others talk about. It is certainly enchanted, but it's an enchanted universe where there is a greater prominence and prevalence of death and darkness rather than life and light. It seems that way. But as we'll see later on in our third point, God says, you know what? It may look that way. It may seem like life is ebbing and flowing and losing its strength, but I am going to have the final laugh. I'm going to have the final say, and I'm going to have that accomplished through that gruesome death of my one and beloved son. I mentioned to you earlier about this curse of the Bambino. So the World Series is going on right now. I don't know who won last night. Don't tell me. I'll find out later. I didn't, but for, so from 2001 to 2006, my family and I had a ch- chance to live in the Boston area. I was teaching at a seminary up there called Gordon-Conwell. And, so, and in 2004, the Boston Red Sox did something that they hadn't been able to do for quite a long, long time. That is, they won the World Series. Now, if you're not a baseball fan, it's like, oh, who cares? Super Bowl is bigger. I think for many of the Red Sox fans, that had such a cosmic significance because there was a player, there are two people that get often mentioned. Cursed of Bambino. Bambino is an Italian word for baby, right? So who might that be? In 1918, they traded a player from Boston to New York, and the Bambino is Babe Ruth. So from 1918 to 2004, they felt like the curse had fallen on them, the city. And one character, you may remember the name Bill Buckner. If you Google Bill Buckner Red Sox, it'll show you a famous or infamous play where as... um, I think it was Mookie Wilson. He had a routine grounder to first base, and all Bill Buckner had to do was kind of put his glove a little lower to the ground, and that would have been perfectly fine. But as a great player, he made this kind of silly mistake that would have life-reaching consequences. You should watch this kind of uh, documentary on Bill Buckner, how he was damaged irrevocably damaged as a result of it. So one of the happiest persons when the Red Sox won the World Series in 2004 was Mr. Buckner himself. Reversal of the curse. See, for many of the Red Sox nation, I mean, I guess if I were preaching in Boston, I'm sure I'll get a very different kind of response, but Nashville's like, whatever, get to the third point, Paul. I will. (laughs) I will. So it's not working, so okay. At least I tried that and got something out of that one. So, all right, reversal of the curse. For kids doing the sermon quiz, you know I'm talking about the curse of the Bambino, so you can fill that one out. So, reversal of the curse. There was a kind of major reversal. There was a kind of cosmic reversal of our fate. Like, man, we're cursed, but now there's something that has happened through the act. And that's representative. I mean, what, what did many of my friends who are diehard Red Sox fans, what did they do? in terms of contributing to a 2004 World Series victory against the St. Louis Cardinals. Nothing at all. 
They didn't do anything. Yet they felt that the Red Sox were what? Representing, representing them. In the same way that we take our elected officials very seriously, right? You should, because you elect them. That means they represent you at the local level, at the city level, at the state level, at the national level, at the UN level. They represent you. So the representative called Adam and Eve could not do what they were meant to do. And the second Adam, named Jesus Christ, does what he is called to do. That leads me to my final point, redemption for Adam. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. When, where sin increased, it says very powerfully in verse 20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. What Paul is trying to do again and again in ways that escape my own understanding in many ways was for him, it is much greater to think and focus on the second Adam's accomplishment. Yeah, the first Adam as a representative of all of humanity, all of his posterity, he messed it up. But the story for the Christian is not focusing on what went wrong. The story for the Christian is focusing on the accomplishment of the second Adam and seeing your identity so closely connected, so inseparably connected to the second Adam named Jesus that you are connected to him by the gift of faith, that you could not prepare yourself any better for it. You could not work yourself toward that goal. And so I want you to remember these three words. And it's kind of depressing for any speaker to say, if you don't remember anything else, remember these things. But okay, I'll say it. Remember these three words, live from life. Not live toward life, meaning that I'm going to do this thing so that I can get to eternal life. No, 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 no. See, through Jesus' accomplishment, you are living from life, meaning you already have the promise of eternal life that Christ has accomplished. He's already paid for it. You are now needing to walk into that reality. The curse is lifted. Curse has been reversed. There is no longer so. This is an enchanted universe of ours. Sure, and as a follower of Jesus, no matter it is October 30th or October 31st or December 1st or whatever day of the year it may be, Whatever tragedy, whatever darkness, whatever death may befall us, and they do, sometimes come expectedly, other times come completely unexpectedly. And in moments like this, in sustained moments like this, in months like this, in years like this, we need to remember that this enchanted universe of ours has the power of Jesus' accomplishment and His presence and His promise with you, and He tells you, live from life. I give you life. So knowing me and being related with me, that means you can live from that life that you already have. Redemption for Adam. And so I do think that we need to see things through the eyes of faith. And seeing things through eyes of faith is hard. It is challenging. And the Apostle Paul makes it very, very clear that we walk by faith, not by sight. That means if we depended on what is visible to us, our faith will be thrown out the window. Sometimes what is palpably in front of us doesn't seem like the kingdom of Jesus is for real. The reason why I get weepy and emotional whenever I sing that song by Isaac Watts, that Jesus shall reign where the sun, is that in many ways, I don't see Jesus reign. In many ways, even in my life, Jesus is not reigning. 
So I say to Jesus, Lord, help me because I want to walk more fully into that life that you already want for me. I want to live from life, but every day I try to live toward life. And Jesus is reminding all of us, my beloved, my friend, you have life already. I cannot love you more. I cannot approve of you more. You're already beloved. Let me give you that hug and squeeze and embrace to remind you that you are mine. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Walk with me. Live from life. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you are ever near us and with us in Jesus Christ, that you will continue to woo us to yourself, and thank you that you are the covenant-keeping Lord, that even though Adam broke the rule and there was a ruin that befell humanity as a result of it, Lord, you have reversed it, therefore bringing about this redemption through Jesus, the second Adam. We thank you, and we pray that all that is yours and yours alone will remain in the hearts and lives of those who are able to hear it, and may you accomplish that great work of bringing us closer to you as we live from life. Amen.